Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this season that teaches and reminds us of who you are. That this is not just a moment in time, but that this is the pattern and and shape of your existence. That you care for the lowly, the broken. That you sent your son to re-enter into this world that he created. For us. It's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name, that we do pray. Amen. Again, turn to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Tom, I don't have control, so you're going to have to. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of his name, of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, and now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And that's where we'll stop this morning. Father, again, we invite your spirit into our hearts to teach and direct and guide us through the word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, in this now fourth Sunday of Advent this year, we turn to another minor prophet, another prophet, this again being a minor prophet. Minor not meaning less important, but smaller in scope and, and most of the time in length of their Ministries. Micah actually isn't really any shorter than anybody else. Context matters, as again I've said the past three weeks. Context matters, especially for the prophets, mostly because most of us don't know the backdrop of what's happening. And so we need to remind ourselves or we need to maybe do the due diligence to best understand. Uh, what is happening? Said in another way, we got to work a little bit harder when we're in the when we're in the prophets, mostly because it's not common knowledge to us what's happening. Micah is speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah from about 750 to 700 BC. So, northern kingdom Israel is conquered at about 712, 715 to 711, depending on who's dating things. 
And so they're conquered during the time Micah is preaching to the southern kingdom. And Micah uses the northern kingdom as an example during, uh, during his ministry, but not in this particular passage. Like all of the prophets, there's, there's kind of two sides to the prophetic message. Number one, repent and change your, change your attitude toward God. You've, you've been led astray or you're wandering astray. Turn back to God or else uh, destruction will, will happen. Last week we talked about how sometimes sometimes that discipline or that judgment happens not not just from uh, ancient or not ancient uh, foreign nations coming and conquering people like Assyria and Babylon, but happens in kind of the common ways. Uh, the the saying you know the good people or bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people isn't always true. Yes, it happens sometimes, but most of the time. Uh, bad people kind of get bad things, and good people kind of get good things. Micah is speaking, again, I, I, like I said, is speaking to the southern kingdom during one of the southern kingdom's most prosperous times in their history. Probably second only to the time when Solomon is king over Israel. You king Saul, King David, and then David's son Solomon. And Solomon is asked by God, Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he says, I want wisdom. And God goes, oh, that's really great. I not only will give you a lot of wisdom, but I'll also give you wealth and prosperity. And Israel just explodes. They're, they're wealthy. The whole world is focused on them. And here in 750, 700, 750 to 700, Israel is experiencing another one of those prosperous times. Judah is experiencing another one of those prosperous times. But the difference between Solomon's reign, at least most of Solomon's reign, and this time, is that the people of Israel are not following God's commands with the prosperity that they have. They've largely become selfish. To use the, sim the simplest definition, they've They've seen their wealth, they've found it to be a good provider, and they've put their trust and their hope in it, and have sought to continue to accumulate it and to build it up and to be wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, all the while completely forgetting all of the people who are around them who are not as fortunate. We live in a Extremely wealthy time. I hope we all know this. I said this last week. I'm sure this isn't the first time you've heard it if, if you weren't here last week or you've forgotten since last week, which is possible. We live in an extremely wealthy time in an extremely wealthy country. Every single person in this room is in the top 1% of world history, financially speaking. We have freedoms that most countries have never had. We have money that most people have never even imagined. We have, we have peace and prosperity like nobody else. Uh, and I want to be very clear here. We are very much like the people in Micah's day. We have felt a security and a comfort in a reality of life that very few people in human history have gotten to experience. And we, like them, are not doing what God has commanded us to do. We, like the people in, the, in, 
this time are not taking care of those people who God has always, and I do mean always, cared for. In the Old Testament law, God makes a number of provisions, 613 laws. Quite a few of those laws are focused on how we are to treat others. If you think about the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments, four of the commandments are us, how we should interact with God. Have no other gods before me, you know, no idols. Six of the laws are actually toward people. God gives us more commands about how we should how we should show his love to others than he does about how we should show our love to him. And all of these things, all of the laws that pertain to how we interact with other people, show us that we should actually think more of others than we do of ourselves. Not that we minimize ourselves, but we should be more, we should be more prone to think about the needs of those who are around us before we think about our own. Especially, especially when we have prosperity and others do not. So God calls us to take care of the orphans and the widows and the sojourners. The reason why he calls us to this is because those people either cannot or are greatly hindered in their ability to take care of themselves. In our time today, we think of a widow and we go, oh, they can get a job work hard, and they can provide for themselves. They can get a job. In fact, they can get a job that, that earns the same amount of money. And they can have a living wage. But in the ancient world, if a, a wife, if her husband died, she was essentially left abandoned. In the ancient world, the woman was not allowed to work. And if she did have a job, it was not a living wage job. Perhaps she was a midwife or, a, or a, a seamstress, and that was just something that she did, not necessarily something that she earned a wage from. And so if a husband died, the wife was then left to the support of the community that she lived in. Now perhaps this was early on in her marriage, and she could go back into her, her father's home and be provided for by her father, but that's not always the case. And eventually the father will die before daughter in most cases the father will die before the daughter and then she'll be left abandoned again remarriage wasn't nearly as common as it is today the orphans maybe we we get this picture a little bit better we understand this picture a little bit better because we have orphans in our lives we understand that if if the community doesn't take care of those uh, orphans who cannot go and get jobs and provide for themselves and pay bills and buy houses. And we need to take care of these people. But it's not just about the people who have had outside influences causing harm. God actually sets up, uh, sets up laws in the Old Testament uh, that revolve around how people kind of get into bad ways. Whether by their own kind of foolishness or by outside influences kind of causing financial struggles. Say you were a landowner, right? You, you own some land in Israel. And if you were an Israelite man, you were actually, by, by, by makeup of the culture, you were supposed to own land. Now, the people of Israel really kind of fail in this area. But Say you owned land and you were going to plant some crops. And you planted your crops and nothing grew. 
And then the next year you planted your crops and, and nothing grew again. And eventually you kind of run out of the ability to either borrow, take out loans, or you've expended any wealth that maybe your family had, and now you're, you're broke. Now in our culture we go into bankruptcy, right? And our debts are, are wiped away. They're not necessarily forgiven, but they're wiped away, at least greatly minimized, all sorts of stuff. If you owned a house, your house is maybe taken from you, depending on what kind of bankruptcy you file, and all that kind of stuff. In, in Israel, what was supposed to happen is that if, you're, if you basically went into financial trouble, fell into financial trouble, you were supposed to go to your neighbor or go to maybe a family member, and you were essentially supposed to give yourself to them, dead and all. So if you own land, you are supposed to farm it, and you're just having a difficult time. You go to your, your neighbor, and you go, okay, I have accumulated debt, and I cannot get out, so here's what I'm going to do. You take my land, and you'll take me as a hired servant, or better put, in the right terminology, as a slave. Now, I, I say hired servant first because that's more like what we would imagine. In America, anytime the word slavery is thrown around, we immediately go to race. Because that's what American slavery was about. And that's what was, was the most heinous and wicked thing about American slavery. Yes, the violence is bad. Yes, the, the lack of, of having uh, humanity was bad. All that kind of stuff was bad. But all of that is caused by racism. In the ancient world, that was not how slavery worked. In fact, in Israel, slavery was supposed to be a means of rescue. Now, that sounds crazy. It was supposed to be a means of rescue. You get into financial trouble, you go to your neighbor, you, get, you give yourself to your neighbor as his slave. You're not going to necessarily earn a wage, but they're going to take your property. They're going to, they're going to cultivate your property. You're going to work for them. You're going to provide for them in some, in some physical way. And then during the year of Jubilee, which was supposed to happen once every seven years, historically speaking, it doesn't actually look like Israel ever did this, which is really quite sad. But in the year of Jubilee, what was supposed to happen is the slate was supposed to be wiped clean. If you, the, the neighbor who didn't fall into financial trouble, brought upon yourself your neighbor who did fall into financial trouble, you were supposed to then return to that person his land and his freedom cleanly. Slate clean. No debts. All debt is gone. All debt is forgiven. There's kind of new stability, maybe new life. Now, in our, in our minds, we go, man, that doesn't seem like that would, that would necessarily work, right? Because maybe somebody would take advantage of that and all sorts, all these extra questions. I'm not going to answer any of those. But what we do see whenever we look at the year of Jubilee is we see that God cares about those people who cannot care for themselves. Orphans, widows, sojourners, those who have fallen upon hard times, the broken, the hurting, the oppressed, the persecuted. And if you're curious if this continues on into the New Testament, yes, it does. James is, is one easy example to point to. James tells us that true religion is to take care of the orphan and the widow. This is the truest, most simple form of our outward expression of God's love for us. We who have benefited from the blessing of God financially, physically, in any way that you want to say, and by the way, that's, that's literally every one of us in this room. 
We're commanded, we're called to serve those who don't have what we have, whether it's by outside influences or by their own mistakes. We're called to care for them. See, then we come to this passage in Micah. And you know what was happening? The people of Israel, they're, they're, they're the people of Judah, excuse me, are bursting forth with prosperity. They're, there's, just, there's just no end to it. They got all this money, and yet, at the same time, the poor, the orphans, and the widows, not only are they not being taken care of, but, but they're being taken advantage of. Those with money were using those without to make more money. They were taking upon themselves slaves that they never freed. In typical human fashion, right? Typical human fashion, greed and selfishness win. And God says enough is enough. He sends Assyria, Assyria conquers the northern kingdom, and God's like, listen, He's through the prophets. He's like, listen, Judah, you guys got to stop this mess. Got to end this. Got to change your ways or else this is going to happen to you. And and the the conquering of northern kingdom Israel by Assyria does two things for southern kingdom Judah. Number one, it makes them go, well, they were wrong. They weren't following God. And then number two, they went, well, wait a minute, we're doing a lot of the same things. And perhaps we need to change. And they did for a little while, and and this is outside of our picture, but they did for a little while, and eventually that stops. We talked about that a little bit last week. So what happens really before chapter four, chapter three, maybe in a half, half of chapter four is we have this, this call of judgment to the people of Judah. And then Micah shifts, just like all the the apostles, or all of, excuse me, the prophets shift. They shift from this message of destruction to this message of hope. Now, the message of hope is really not for the people who are first hearing. It's for the people in the next generation, the people who have experienced the judgment, and now we're looking around going, where's God? Micah, he says, let me tell you where God is. In verse 2, he says, But you, O Beth- Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Hmm. such an interesting passage to me. Bethlehem in Judah, in the, in the region of Judah, Bethlehem is this tiny little town where David is from, right? And the reality is, is it doesn't really matter who comes from the city. If the city's not really growing, just a person from that place doesn't change anything, right? I bet you most of us don't know any cities where a president is from. Right? Where were they? Where were they born? Did that city that maybe was a small city? And by the way, actually, most of the cities that presidents were from are rather small. They didn't grow because an important person came from there. Bethlehem was no different. Bethlehem was nothing. It was 
tiny and insignificant. It was a blip on the map. It was a, it was a one, one stop sign town, right? And yet, what do we see? It says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you, are t- you, you who are too little to be counted as one of the clans of Judah. You're so small and insignificant that you can't even be called a clan. Which is basically a family unit. You can't even be called a family. You're, you're, too, you're too tiny and insignificant for anybody to care about you. But yet, but yet, but yet God does. Again, not because this is some new phenomena that God has, has just started. But because this is who God is. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the, in the New Testament, the Gospels. And at one point, Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, I didn't, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick. This is the same kind of mentality, the same attitude that we see from God from the start of the, the Bible to the end of the Bible. I didn't come to help those who don't need help. I came, though, I came to help those who do, in fact, need help. And not only do they need help, but they know they need help. Now, we see this in a very real way. Most of us see this in a very real way in, in the spiritual aspects of our lives. We recognize that we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and, 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 and no matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we exert, we still just cannot do enough to think that we could possibly deserve to be saved. But it's more than that. It's more than that for God. He cares about whether we're eating, how we're sleeping. He cares about if we're cold. If we have shelter over our heads. God does, in fact, care more than we do. I think that's kind of sad, isn't it? It's kind of sad how little I care about those who are hurting and broken. It's sad how little our culture cares about those who are hurting and broken. But I think there's a positive here. There's a, there's a, there's a positive that God cares. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephraim, you who are too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, the one who is to be ruler of Israel. Right, we sing, O little town of Bethlehem, right? We sing this song. We, we know where Bethlehem is because God chose to show favor upon it. But there's something more here, isn't there? It's not just about God showing that he cares about the poor and the orphans and the widows and the broken and the destitute. While that message is absolutely important, and while that message is saturated in the entirety of Scripture, that That's not the only thing that's happening here. Because we know who who Micah is talking about. He's not talking about David. While every one of his listeners, every one of Micah's listeners would have immediately, that's where their brains would have went. Oh, David is from Bethlehem. And his lineage came from Bethlehem. So so it must be this this, this descendant. It's something more than this. It's something, it's, it's who the prophets 
All of them share this in common. This off in the distance hope of something more than what they've seen. Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace. The Mighty Counselor. This Messiah, he's going to come. And where is he going to come? He's going to come in a tiny little manger, in a tiny little town, born to tiny little parents of complete insignificance. Christ, the Messiah, comes to nothing. Isn't that shocking? Think about this for just, think about it. I mean, really, think, think about, think about somebody who comes from wealth. Think about somebody who comes from, from, from real, from real wealth. Not just a person who's really probably in what we would call the upper middle class. But somebody who's in the, in the upper class, right? Millions of dollars a year in income. Think about a child being born into that situation. Do they know what it's like to be poor? No. Maybe they, maybe they, maybe they understand it, right? They've, they've heard stories. They, maybe, maybe they, they've even seen, seen friends or, or family members or some, some other people who've experienced what it, what it's like to look at the bank account come bill day and go, there's not enough money in here to pay for this. So what do I need to not pay for? Or do they, do they know what it is to have to drive in a car that you're really quite worried won't get you to point B? They don't understand it, do they? Now, now let's, let's take this and let's, let's bring it to God. Right? What is, what is a common thing that we say about God is all, all knowing? Right? He's all knowing. But not a single person in this room ever thinks that that means that God understands what it, what it's like to suffer like we do. Does he? That's why this is so shocking. This Messiah, this, this king, this to be ruler of Israel is going to be born in this little insignificant town who is so insignificant that we almost, we almost don't even claim it as our own. And he's going to be ruler of Israel? What are you even talking about? But this is exactly where Jesus comes. He comes to, to, to live and to dwell not in a palace, but amongst those he cares about. And I really do think so that he can best understand the plight of what it means to be broken. Our God cares so much about us that he sends his son into the, into the earth to live like us. 
to live an uncomfortable life. Jesus is born to a a carpenter as a father. You can go to Nazareth uh, today, right? You go to Nazareth and, and some of the surrounding towns, and you can see things that were built by carpenters from, from Nazareth. And you can actually make the case, perhaps Jesus built some of these things. Isn't that shocking? Floors me to think that that's even a remote possibility. But God cares about the little broken cities. But it goes on, right? It goes on, verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This is a strange passage, and, and there's a lot of different opinions about what's going on here. I think this is probably talking about the time of exile. And eventually, when they come back, the exile kind of continues. I'm not going to dwell very long on there because I, I don't entirely know what I believe about it, and so we'll just keep going. It says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. And now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now the message of Micah is written really to, to two groups. It's written to group A, or group number one, whatever you want whatever label you want to put on it which is those people who are failing in what God has called them to be. It is a chastisement. It's discipline. It's also a call to change. But then there's another message to the second group who are those people who are broken and who are hurting. That God's plan is not Man's plan. God's plan is loving. He cares. The Messiah that is to come, not only will he care for the people, but he'll understand the people. This is what Christmas, even in our culture, is about. I mean, how shocked would we be if we saw the Salvation Army in July? Right? I mean, you know what they're doing, right? When they're ringing that bell and they're asking you to give donations. They're trying to provide for the poor. Now just imagine if that happened in, in July, how many people would be, would be upset? How, how dare you care for those who are struggling? Think about how important it is for us as Christians to take upon the form of our King Jesus. Not only does Jesus care for us, but he understands us. How is it that we can be changed by this? As we think about Christmas, as we think about the incarnation of our son, 
of our, of our Lord and Savior, the Son of God. As we think about the, the, the higher percentage of us caring about those who are less fortunate than, than us at this time, let us do our best to think this way through the year. Because the incarnation of the Son of God wasn't meant to be a moment. It wasn't meant to be a passing situation. It was meant to change the lives of those who followed after Him. We are called to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Because our God and King does that first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would you would turn our hearts to be molded into the into the same heart that your son has. Lord, we pray that you would you would fill us today and always with this love, this compassion, this desire to care for those that you care for. Lord, we thank you that we have been redeemed. We have been saved and rescued by the blood of your Son. We pray this in his precious name.